are listening to the podcast Advertising Playbook, your resource to better understand and execute successful podcast ad campaigns. Hello and welcome to the podcast Advertising Playbook. I'm your host, Heather Osgood, and I am joined today by Chris Walker. Chris is the CEO of Refine Labs. And if you're not following Chris, he creates some amazing content. So make sure that you follow him. Chris, welcome to the show. Heather, great to be here. Looking forward to this. So before we get too deep, can you tell us just a little bit about Refine Labs and what exactly it is that you guys do? Sure. Yeah. So I, um, in 2017 through 2019, I developed an entirely new way to think about generating revenue at a company I worked for called Vapotherm. And then over the past three years, have worked at, have started a company called Refine Labs. And at the moment, we help companies innovate on how they think about driving revenue. Um, and so just like companies think about how am I going to innovate on my product? Like, how am I going to do research and development and build new features and platforms in order to gain a competitive advantage and increase market share? We do the same thing on the revenue side, revenue R&D. How are we going to build new revenue programs that customers want, scale them, operationalize them so that companies can count on them to deliver in the future? Mm -hmm. That's awesome. And you guys focus specifically on B2B or do you do? We're at the moment exclusively in B2B and I'd be happy to talk through why that's a strategic choice that we've made for a variety of reasons. And so I'd be happy to cover that if you want. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, maybe let's get into that. But we are here today to talk about dark socials. So if you're not familiar with the term, I, I would say you're probably not alone. I don't think it's necessarily a concept that a lot of people talk about. But when we think about podcast advertising, one of the biggest challenges with podcast advertising is this trackability. And, you know, having done it for six and a half years now, I would say that that's something I hear from advertisers over and over is how can I track this? And Chris, you put something out not long ago talking about dark social and talking about kind of what it means and how podcasts really fall into that category. So before we we dive too deep, can you just give us a definition of what dark social is? Yeah, absolutely. Dark social is through the scale and maturity of the internet. It's created tons of different word of mouth channels where buyers can share ideas, uh, validate decisions and discover new products that don't create intent data and don't get tracked by attribution software. And so I first started, I heard the term dark social for the first time in 2016. I was doing heavy organic and paid Facebook marketing. And that was a term that was used to describe when somebody takes a post and sends it in a message that you can't measure and shares it with somebody. And over time, in the past eight years, since 2016, the internet has significantly matured and evolved. There's tons of different social platforms. There's new content platforms. Privacy policies continue to get more strict. There's less and less data that can be relied upon for marketers to use to, in order to drive their strategy. And those things might include social networks like LinkedIn or TikTok, content platforms I view differently, which would be like more content first, YouTube and a podcast internal communications like Slack or emails, word of mouth channels like phone calls or live events. There's just tons of different places where B2B buyers are exchanging information and, and using that to make buying decisions that aren't being tracked. And because companies are so obsessed with attribution, they don't even acknowledge that this stuff is happening. And then they think, oh, we can't control word of mouth. And they pour more money back into Google and SEO and other things because of the measurement bias on those channels. And I just think that one, uh, trying to illuminate that there's a huge opportunity here. And as this has emerged before buyers didn't have access to their peers, they went to blogs and websites and talked to your sales team. 
And now because they have access to their peers who they trust way more than vendors, nothing wrong with vendors, by the way, they just trust their peers more. Now that they have access to them and they know how to use them, they're going to use them in order to get that information instead of the places where they used to go. And so I think this is a massive shift in how buyers want to buy and how buyers get information to buy and just encouraging companies to look at it and acknowledge that it's happening so that you can act, you can take advantage of it. A lot my company is there's a lot of companies out there that are actually taking advantage of this situation. Mm -hmm. Well, and I what I love is that this is something that you're talking about, number one, but number two, I think the idea of actually embracing it and realizing that it's happening is super important because I mean, the reality is, is that we're probably attributing a lot of conversions to incorrect channels. And as you said, a big part of it is that most marketers want to be able to say with exact certainty, this is exactly where this came from. And because they have kind of that metrics bias, because they want all of this data, they're very quick to attribute conversions to channels that may not actually be the correct channel at all. And it, so is that is that what you see? I wouldn't say that it's incorrect. I would say that it's incomplete. Mm. Um, and so most, most measurement tools that have been out for a while are built around capturing demand. How do we measure transactional activities typically on web 1.0 properties? So websites, blogs, news sites, search, things like that. And what we need to start looking at it about is what is capturing the demand versus what is creating the demand. And if you think about as a marketer, the places that you struggle to measure, podcast, um, sometimes uh, live events, social, sometimes like non-conversion based paid social community, all the things that make up dark social are the things that you're not able to measure effectively because they're creating demand, not capturing it. And so just encouraging marketers to think about how are we going to build new ways to measure these things that the tools that we use right now don't measure. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about creating demand, I feel like that's really fascinating because um, we don't as marketers often look at that creation piece. And I also don't necessarily find that we value it as much because as as a marketer, your job is to get conversions in the door, right? So if your job is, I'm going to get enough people to buy my product, so I'm, I'm focused on that. And in reality, creating that demand is just as important. Do you think that marketers value that demand creation as much? I'm not sure if it's about whether the marketers value it or not. I actually believe that the reason that it's here is because of how executives value it and measure it. So if you think about as a in a business, the, how the business measures the effectiveness of marketing and sales and how that all gets implemented comes directly from the executive team. And typically those come from the executive team that gets pushed down by boards, investors, or analyst firms. And so you just get this type of insight and then the marketers have to play within the box that the executives create for them. And it's just a shitty box to play in mm -hmm. for the most, mm -hmm. part, for the most yeah. part. Reality is that when you think about the difference in your market between creating demand and capturing demand, the estimate is that 99% of your market is not in market to buy at any one time. Only 1% is. And so if all your money and resources is focused on that 1%, not focused on how do I get the other 99% to want to buy, you're just significantly limiting your upside. The second piece of it is if you're not doing it, who is? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Who's doing it? It's one of your competitors or, some, or a parallel product that you don't even think that you compete with that's just over time siphoning and stealing market share from you because you're not focused on those buyers because of simply because of the measurement. I know that marketing teams want to do the marketing that my company does or like you're doing, right? They want to do these things. 
and they end up getting handcuffed and stuck because of how the, the box has been designed. When we're talking to people about podcast advertising, it is such a direct response space. And there are so many companies who've done really well with direct response, but they don't seem like they value that interest in the product, right? Or the the brand awareness piece. And I feel like that for me is one of the elements that I get most frustrated about is at the end of a campaign when an advertiser is like, oh, that didn't work because I didn't like hit my conversion goals. And we're not able really to measure, like you said, that 99% of people who had never heard about your product. And I think it's especially important if you're a brand that people have never heard of before, if I hear an ad for you, am I really gonna run out and, and purchase your product today? It takes so many different impressions. It takes so many different exposures to your product. And as you said, you know, it really does take that friend or that colleague or that podcast host, or maybe you're the YouTuber that you watch all the time saying, Hey, this is a great product. You should check it out for you to, you know, potentially go down and make a purchasing decision. But really there aren't that many people who are in the market to buy your product today. So why do you think that we're not? I mean, I know you said it's because this, the executives are saying, hey, conversions, conversions, conversions. But why do you think that marketers aren't able to focus enough on the idea of just awareness and, and you know, creating interest in product? I think because of the obsession with direct attribution. And when you look at some of these channels, you're not going to get exactly direct attribution. But what we've done is we've innovated here and created a, a mechanism that we call self-reported attribution, where when the customer converts to buy your stuff and we end up winning those deals right now at 12 and a half percent. So like one out of every eight people that submit this form tells us where they heard about us and we be, they become a $300,000, $500,000 a year customer. And so we get a lot of good insights here. And at the moment, 47% of our revenue comes from people that said something along the lines of, I heard about you on a podcast, whether that's our podcast, me being a guest on podcasts, an advertisement that we might've run or anything like that. And so I think that, that companies need to stop looking at it about what did the podcast advertising show drive? And instead look at what did our podcast strategy drive? And so right. by it up, getting out of the channel or the, the actual thing and looking at it more holistically, and then you can see when people say, I heard about you on podcasts and different things like that, you get a lot of confidence to go. And then sometimes you'll get the details about, I heard you on the State of Demand Gen podcast, or I heard about you on this Revenue Talks podcast. You'll get some of those different insights, but then you can acknowledge that there are other ways to measure this stuff too. You could send a, sur you could send a survey to a hundred of your target accounts. Mm -hmm. you, you could interview 20 people that bought. Mm -hmm. you could interview 20 random people. There are so many ways other than using software to get insights about what's working and what's not in your customers. And that is the gap. Again, the gap, direct attribution, obsession with measurement and obsession with qualitative data over quantitative data. We need to have a blend here. I don't know how right. many, I feel like a broken record. I don't know how many times I can say this. We need to have a blend. And I personally favor qualitative data because you get insights faster, you get more direct insights because they're coming directly from your customers. It allows you to use your brain and interpret them instead of a spreadsheet. And when you use your brain, you typically come up with things that other people aren't going to come up with, which makes you differentiated and build, builds a strategy that other people can't build. 
There are just so many reasons to lean into this. And, and so the people that don't do this are going to continue to have the same old marketing strategy, the B2B MQL playbook from 2012. And they're going to become extinct marketers. They're probably going to go and find a job some, in a different department eventually. And their companies are not going to be successful running this model. If you look at companies that are growth stage, so if you exclude SAP, Oracle, Salesforce, Gainsight, all the companies that already won, if you exclude those companies and then look at who is being successful running an MQL model, it's nobody. Nobody in a growth phase can win with this strategy anymore. And so people that continue to copy the Salesforce playbook from 2006 and wash and repeat it for their 50-person SaaS company, they're going to continue to struggle. Mm -hmm. So I love the idea of qualitative data, but I also think that it's extremely difficult to execute. And one of the things I find really fascinating about this world that we're living in right now especially marketers and, and many other positions too, is the idea of actually kind of having a conversation with your customer feels really uncomfortable for a lot of marketers. They like the idea of having spreadsheets. They like the idea of just having all of this information get delivered to them. They feel uncomfortable with the idea of how do I have these conversations or what if I send out a survey and nobody responds or what if we put it, how did you hear about us button and people don't respond to that. So how would you coach a marketer through that process? Because I think that there's a lot of fear around it. What are your thoughts? Do you want to be a marketer or not? Talking to customers is a requirement. If you don't talk to customers, I wouldn't even call you a marketer at this point. So it's like, you got to make a decision. Do I want to be in this job or not? Mm -hmm. Like I, at one point I was scared to talk to customers too. That was 2012. I was 22 years old. And then the next year when I was 23, 2013, I got out and started talking to customers and I sucked at it and I had to go and, and go and figure out. And it took me two or three years to build this skill. And now it is the most valuable skill in business ever. It allows me to build a differentiated category. It allows me to figure out where our product roadmap is going. It allows me to inspire both the people on our team and the market because I have such deep qualitative insights about where the world is going. It's an incredibly powerful skill in all areas of life, but especially business. And so like, do, do you want it or not? Like, you can be a one, you never be a 1% marketer by not doing this stuff. Mm -hmm. Do you find that people who are more likely to talk to you um, are going to come with a certain frame of reference? Do you think that when you have those conversations that they are skewed because the people who are willing to talk? Ask the question so that you don't get skewed data. That's a good answer. Yeah. So, so really it's a, it's about that. Most so, people do, most people do customer research with the intention of having the, having the customer validate what they already think, not trying to figure out what the customer actually thinks. So they're, they're going in there with an agenda for the customer to confirm what they already believe, whether or not it's true. And then you get the yes, man type of answer. When you do that to customers, they'll just, yeah, whatever. You're not listening to me anyway. It's a lot of discipline and it takes years to develop the idea of going in there. And I don't care what answer you give me as long as it's the truth. And then with the truth, I can go and use that to figure out how am I going to adjust my strategy to this reality if I start to see patterns. Listening to customers is also super misunderstood. I don't take what they say and then go and do it. I listen to what a ton of people say. I consolidate and aggregate in my brain. I understand what do they actually mean? What are the commonalities here? And then does it matter to me or not? And if so, how am I going to adjust to it? 
So there's a huge layer of analysis, right? Just like what you would do in a spreadsheet with a big pivot table and make some charts and make a deck that happens in my brain. And then I do all these analyses and then I go and, and use them to, go, to change direction. And at, sometimes I'll use quantitative data to support or check the thinking. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so how do those converge? Right? So if you've got but if you've got the attribution, if you've got the information that you know, and then you've got this qualitative survey data, how can you combine those together to and, and I guess what what weighted percentages should they play? You're taking a very quantitative mindset into qualitative measurement. There is no combining. Like, look at them as independent things, draw conclusions, and then see if there are overlaps or commonalities. I think that people are very afraid for, I guess, afraid of going into something where they don't have a paint by number answer, right? Like, oh, this is gray. I'm scared. Let's try and put it into uh, like calculations. So we can figure out whether I do one or two. And the reality is that all the good decisions get made in the gray. Otherwise, every, everyone else could do it. Right. Um, so there's, right. A, there's a huge level of, of comfort and there. It comes from a level of inexperience. It, and I've had I've suffered from this before early in my career. It comes from a level of insecurity about, am I going to make the right choice? What if I what if I made the wrong choice? And the reality is that you'll never know whether or not you made the right choice or not. You'll never mm-hmm. be in this position to make this decision ever again. So you'll never be able to look back and say whether or not it was right or wrong. So all you can do is make the best decision that you can at any one time. I make decisions significantly faster than anyone else that I've, I've interacted with or know. And a lot of people find that scary or troubling because sometimes we go down a path and then we change direction two weeks later. But guess what? Now we're two weeks farther than anybody else that sat here and didn't do anything. And so there's like the the ability to know that you're making decisions with imperfect data, being able to move and know that you're moving in the right direction, and then being humble and willing to adjust if you recognize that you were not right, I think are huge skills as a, if you want to be a business leader in the future, I think that you really need to be comfortable making those types of decisions in the gray. Yeah. Yeah. My business coach used to always say, ready, fire aim instead of ready aim fire because the reality is is that you do have to fire before you're aiming so that you have the information like you said it's so important to be able to gather that information because if you spend so much time focused on the aiming you never actually get to the action piece and that's where i think a lot of business owners and marketers really fall short is they're they are so afraid of making a mistake I guess I'm curious though, one one thing that I see happen a lot is that marketers have to justify themselves to their bosses. They have to justify themselves to the executives. They have to say, I made the right decision. And I know that for podcast advertising in particular, when attribution tracking came into play, I was like, our problems are solved. We've got attribution tracking. Like I'll be able to sell ads to everyone now because they can paint this picture that they're trying to paint. And and I, I was doing some, some reading this morning about dark social. And one of the things I thought was really interesting is that, you know, we can all create the kind of fake data that we want, right? Like you can give me all kinds of numbers and I can make it say whatever you want it to say. But how does a marketer justify their actions to their executives if they don't have maybe the black and white that they're used to having? by hitting or exceeding your goals. 
it's not, it's not complicated. Nobody gives a fuck. I don't know if we're all just on here, but I have to. Nobody gives a fuck about your attribution report until you miss your targets. Okay. So like get aligned with the executive team on what are the goals. I highly recommend that you measure the success of your, your, uh, demand creation. I don't even want to call it marketing anymore. Your demand creation and demand capture motions by how much revenue gets created through your website, which means that tons of buyers have come to you and said, Hey, I want to buy, which is a great signal that you're doing effective marketing. And then when they actually buy, then you can go in through that. This is not a marketing source versus sales source. It's not looking at it like that. It's looking at it. What, what are the places where we capture demand that we convert to revenue, our website, partner, outbound, other things like that. And then just look at the website bucket and drive millions of dollars of revenue through it. It's not complicated. And then, and then once you do that, then nobody, literally nobody cares about like, I barely look at the attribution reports in our business and it just gets to a point where it's like, okay, like marketing has hit their target uh, to we've driven enough, you know, revenue and pipeline through the website for the past five quarters in a row. Like, I don't, whatever they're doing must be right. I'm not going to go and scrutinize the $2,000 a month we spend on podcast advertising. Mm-hmm. And the reason that marketers run to attribution is because they don't hit the goal. And so then they need to go and justify themselves and they have to figure out why they made that expense because then people are wondering, why didn't we hit our target? Only, the only rational solution to this is hit your goals and then nobody's going to look at this stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that makes total sense. So I guess I'm really curious podcast advertising always just feels like a black box, right? So like I have this conversation constantly, like we would love to advertise, but we can't really track the conversions. And since we can't track the conversions, you know, we're not able to invest as much, even from a programmatic angle, just having conversations with marketers that are like, Hey, if I don't know that I'm specifically hitting this person, then I'm not going to buy. I had a conversation last week with a woman who said that there's a percentage of dumb downloads in the podcast space, meaning, you know, they're dumb because we can't say exactly who is listening. And since we can't say exactly who's listening, that means we can't advertise to them. And in the industry, it feels like we're all sitting here just kind of with, you know, holding our breath saying, as soon as we get this piece figured out, as soon as we can tell you with absolute certainty who you're reaching and what your conversions are, then, then we're going to hit that place and we're going to, you know, really, you know, bust the doors open in terms of revenue. But it sounds like you don't necessarily agree with that. You don't necessarily think that we need the metrics. It's really more about the marketing approach. If you get customer insights, you don't need the metrics. I don't know what to say. And so like I'm pulling, while you were talking about that, I pulled up an example here. Uh, a week ago, I posted a LinkedIn video. I'm looking at it. Um, it was viewed so far. 276,000 people watched this video. The video is two and a half minutes long. And out of that, 841 people liked it, which means that 3% of the people that watched it, actually, it's way less than that. Um, like, 0.4%, less than a percent of people that actually watched the video engaged with it in a way that's identifiable. And so like you can, you can spend your time working on the 841 people that can identify while you miss out on the 276,000 other people that are unidentifiable. This is the, this is the difference between leaning into dark social or continuing to resist it. Like you're still in web 1.0 marketing automation. 
So the people that are saying that, like I would spend zero time trying to convince people that say that to do podcast advertising and figure out your targeting strategy. So that you're talking to people that already are bought in. Uh, I spend no, the things that we do are not that different. And I spend zero time trying to convince someone that's like, oh, we can't measure that. It's like, you'll come back in six to 18 months when I follow up and realize that you need to do this because what you've continued to do just is going nowhere. So, um, mm-hmm. I, I, I really think it's a difference between the marketers that are going to adjust, they're going to win, and they're going to have much stellar careers, and they're going to get promoted more, and they're going to make more money, and they're going to start great companies. And the ones that don't are going to become extinct. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I started my career in radio and newspaper advertising, and we couldn't track anything ever. And then when digital marketing came along, it was like, oh, this is going to change the whole face of advertising. And it did, but really, like... Way. Well, right, exactly the wrong way. And then now, I mean, like we're talking about like the cookie going away. All I mean, and I I agree with all you. Stuff. Yeah, sorry to interrupt you, but like yeah. all the things that are changing, coming from a marketer, business leader, entrepreneur, and if you're a marketer listening to this, you should think, think the same. All these things that are changing are good things for marketing. And why are they good? Is it because they're going to really just force marketers to actually kind of do their job? They create separation. That's like if you, because over time, the marketers that don't adjust are the gap between a good, an average marketer and a great marketer is going to continue to get wider and wider. I've been watching this effect since 2015. So you'll be able to separate, which is why I'm able to pop up with my company three years ago and build a very large high growth company in a short period of time because I understand how people buy today and I have a deep understanding of customers. And so there's just that, that I think that it's a great thing because it, it takes average marketers and it makes them bad. It takes great marketers and it makes them exceptional. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And would you say that it's understanding, is it all about understanding your customers? Is that the piece that average to bad marketers are missing is just that understanding? I think it's the prerequisite to everything. I'm not talking about dark social because like I made it up. I talked about it because I've been listening to what customers say since 2017 about how they love listening to our podcast and our social and seeing our Facebook ads and things like that. And all the attribution software saying is SEO is crushing it for you. And we didn't spend a dime on SEO at that point. And so like, I, I'm not just sort of coming up with these topics out of nowhere. Customers feed the insights about how do they want to buy? Where are they discovering things? What's resonating and what's not? I go out in, into the field like I was a sales rep and I test messaging. I go mm-hmm. on a sales calls today. I did one. I did two yesterday. And I go and I test messaging. Mm-hmm. And I can feel, because I'm pitching it, I can feel what's working and what's not, which gives me a whole lot of confidence to lead our organization down a path because I did it myself. So yeah, I do think that the, the lack of customer understanding is a massive problem in marketing. And I pro- if you bubbled it up, that's probably the number one. And like I mentioned, like if you don't talk to customers, I don't even think you can categorize yourself as a marketer right now. And when I say customers, I mean the market. So it's very important to talk to people that don't pay you as well. And probably sometimes easier to talk yeah. to people that don't pay you. Yeah. Right. And more important, right? Because I mean, yeah, you can talk to your customers that are buying from you, which is important because you want to know why they're purchasing from you. But if you're talking to somebody and saying, why didn't you purchase my product? That's almost, I would think in a lot of cases, more important because then you can learn well, what did you do wrong? Like what made them not buy from you? Or what about the 99% that not even thinking about you? Right. Like I, 
I like there is a win and a loss and like that's right. important, but that's really a sales analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like getting out and being like for the hun- thousands of companies, like n- most of our TAM, that's not even thinking about buying our company and hasn't heard about our product. Like, what do they think? That would be the interesting data point as a, as a person that's trying to go and create demand, go out and do research, get in the field, go and visit people, do surveys, do Zoom calls, list, like do all those things and start to figure out what do these people actually think? And you'll notice that they what they think is different than what aligns with your product. Just like the people that on the measurement of podcast advertising, what they think doesn't align with your, your product. And then your job as a marketer, but I really like framing this as demand creation because CSMs or sales reps or other ones could do it, other people could do it. How do you change that person's perception on those key issues? And when you do, they will be open to buying your stuff. And that is truly the job. And I think that marketing, because they're so focused on lower funnel, they never think about that. And eventually that demand dries up or the demand plateaus or or what's happening right now, the demand declines. And if you don't know how to get net new buyers to want to buy your stuff, you are in a tough spot as a company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. What? How much of it do you think is messaging? Because I often think that people don't talk in a way that their customers can hear them. And that if you're not reaching people with the right message, that that also is not effective. It's everything. People, like wrong, wrong message, right? We don't understand customers. So we're coming up with something vanilla or something generic or something that includes so much tech words that our product manager wrote, right? So like the messaging could be off. The distribution, people put like trying to get their ebook downloaded through display ads or trying to use LinkedIn gated content where people fill out the form but never actually consume the PDF. And they distribute the stuff in places where people don't pay attention. So even if you had the right message, people wouldn't see it. And then you have the measurement part of it. And, they, and all three of those things are where it breaks down. Because uh, then when you measure, you're like, oh, we got three view through conversions on display ads. Let's go put more money over there. And you just look at the metrics in the wrong way, which drives you to, to invest in the wrong places. So I, it's hard to pinpoint because there's oftentimes multiple points where it breaks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, kind of just trying to point this a little bit back to podcast advertising. So your experience has been that podcasts have delivered tremendous results for your business. And that's not just podcast advertising, but that's the whole podcast experience. Is that the case? Yeah, this, the, most of it gets attributed to our owned channel, State of Demand mm-hmm. Podcast. We're in the process of rebranding. Um, so most of it is on the own channel, but to create the owned channel content, which we published about 320 episodes in the past two and a half, two and a half years, we, I'm a guest like here, and then this podcast will go on your podcast, but eventually it will go on our podcast as well. So being a guest is a part of the owned podcast strategy, me going and speaking and doing keynotes at places where I get paid to speak in front of people and marketers and business people. And I do that not because they're going to give me money for the speech. I do it so that I can create the podcast and the video content. So those events that I do, that those expenses get attributed into the podcast amount. And then even if you look at that further, we're creating video content right now. And so this video content will then get pushed through LinkedIn and TikTok and Facebook. So it's hard to look like the channels are important to understand, but it's really one program. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. Yeah. I I think what you just said there is so important. And I know that as marketers, we understand this, but I don't, 
I don't think that there is like a beginning and an end. And part of what frustrates me sometimes is when, when marketers look at podcasts as a channel by itself. And it's like, well, if you're just going to do podcasts kind of in its own little silo, how do you expect it to be successful? Like everything that you do, do should be totally integrated from beginning to end so that you have this continuous message about your product and you're reaching your customers. Like we said, you're reaching them where they're at with the message that they have. And there shouldn't necessarily be a, did this podcast work? It should really be, is this overall approach working? Um, is that kind of the, the, I guess, approach you take? Marketers need to stop being obsessed about channels and start getting obsessed about results. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Business results, right? And so it just gets you out. People are stuck so far in the micro. It's par partially fault of how companies goal to individual contributors that are on these programs. So the person that's doing SEO needs to prove that SEO drives revenue. The people that podcast need to prove that that's driving revenue. And the people that run ads need to prove that that's driving revenue. And then all you have is you have seven managers competing for credit across all these channels where all of them matter. And so I think yeah. there's one, com one part about this channel obsession, which I, again, I, I truly believe gets created through leadership, not at the individual contributor level. So that's something for people to think about. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think a big mistake that a lot of companies make is that they really do silo their marketers, right? Like you're in charge of paid search, you're in charge of social, you're in charge of audio it's strategy, you know, behavior. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really difficult to, to look at something that that's integrated. So at the end of the day, when we think about results for our advertising, it isn't necessarily about all of this quantitative data that we're used to getting. It's about understanding your customer, understanding the message that you're putting out there. And so it's not, it's not that dark social is a bad thing at all. It's really just about the approach that you're taking to it. Why do you think that you guys have chosen to work with B2B as opposed to B2C? For a couple of reasons. So if you look at if you look at B2C, like I think that a lot of the problems that exist in B2B are also present in B2C, but it's highly, highly crowded and it's highly competitive. And as a business person, when you go and you look at, okay, what market do I want to go and compete with? You can go and get, try and get Procter & Gamble as a customer for Crest where they're selling $3 toothpaste through Walmart. They make like 30 cents margin on that product. Or you can go and try and work with HubSpot and Salesforce that are making 85% profit margin and are billions of dollars of revenue and close you know six, seven figure deals where there's tons of profit in every sale. And then, so one, just like profit and recurring revenue models is one thing. And then when you look at the actual situation in companies, like the, the B2B situation needs to be solved and no one's solving it. So there's just a clear opening of like, hey, everybody in this entire ecosystem thinks the same way because they get information from the two or three same old firms. They've been doing it since two th the early 2000s. What if somebody new came in and was like, hey, here's a different approach that works for 2020 and beyond there's a clear opening in the market. And when you're a business person, you're doing qualitative customer research and you're looking for the opening in the market. In 2019, I had B2C customers. I was running ads for a yoga pants brand. I was running ads for a, like event companies and things like that. And that was when my company was me. And then in six months, you figure out who is our target customer? What do we actually deliver to them? And then you, you grow and scale. 
And so that was, it was part of the strategy definition, the first six months of being in business in order to, to decide that and learn pretty quickly that the opportunity was over here. And I think that today, there's not a better opportunity in all of business than being a 1% B2B marketer. Because, I don't disagree with you. The, because of the, the lack of talent and the considerable out, outdated thinking and the idea that most C-level executives don't understand this, even the CMO. The CMO came up 20 years ago where it was events and print and enabling the sales team. And now they got to go and figure out how do we do TikTok and be the podcast host and do things. And they're confused. They, they didn't even have a CRM when they were coming up. And so there's like, they can't build their own Salesforce reports. And those are the continuous cuts that create a lot of opportunities for new marketers. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree with you. So much has changed. It's insane. It's hard to keep up when you are in it, but when you didn't come up in it, it's, it's even harder. Do you think that these same concepts can apply to B2C or do you think that they are more effective with B2B? I totally think that these concepts can apply in B2C because it's universal about how people discover. So like dark social is probably stronger in B2C. Yes. Um, like way more content sharing, social networks. You can imagine all the stuff, all the products that you've seen on Instagram stories or like influencer strategies or all the different things. So dark social is probably way more strong in B2C, but the way that companies measure brand and, and measure other things has all the same problems. Mm -hmm. they, they do the same thing. They get stuck in like Google search and other transactional type of behaviors. Even when they run paid social ads, even though a lot of them are frame, like more, the creative is more geared toward a demand creation motion, but they still put in the checkout and they measure it against attributable conversions and things like that. So I do believe all the same issues when it comes to analytics are present in B2C as well as B2B. Sure. What do you think about price point? So, you know, um, last week I was in an event and I had the opportunity to talk to a lot of advertisers face to face, uh, talk to a mattress company where it's like, oh yeah, our average dollar sale is like $3,000 and talk to a supplement company. And they're like, yeah, our average dollar sale is 72. Is it more difficult for someone who's price point is lower to actually succeed in business when it, when we talk about like okay now it becomes about volume instead of you know creating maybe these but but then there's also obviously that supplement company they've got a customer who's going to continue to buy from them mattress company they're going to buy a mattress one every maybe 10 15 years so i don't know do you think that there are differences when it comes to price point i like i think there are differences in how you have to craft your strategy based on that but like you mentioned you're sort of alluding to it this this comparison between volume and price point typically just indicates size of market. And so whether you're at lower price or higher price, you want, you're going for a market that's large and then you need to decide where do I want to play in that? Do I want to be the premium? Do I want to do certain things like that? Do I want to be the low cost person? Do I want to go and reframe how people look at this? So they see me as the only option. There are a lot of different ways to actually look at this. I personally love products that are lower volume and higher priced, because I think it creates a much more, an opportunity for a much more thoughtful and differentiated strategy where most people just think about doing sales and I can think about how am I actually going to effectively do this digitally at scale. So I think there's just advantages for me and where the market is for higher priced, lower volume. I had a, a company that sold $40 blankets on Amazon. We made like $9 in margin after all the fees and shipping and stuff like that. 
And you got to do some volume there to make it worthwhile. And those were some of the learnings that showed me, hey, maybe you want to sell higher price products. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I think that if you're, if you're a strong marketer, you should be able to do both. Yeah. It's actually a lot of the same activities, just the, the mindset around it and the prop, like the profitability. If you can think about it, like some of the, the most iconic company, B2C companies have the lowest price stuff tied toothpaste, Starbucks, like, and so I, like, just because you sell a low price product doesn't mean that you can't build a big business. Right, right, yeah. for sure. So one of the big topics of conversation within the podcast space right now is around dynamic ad insertion. So, um, you know, just to set the stage, dynamic ad insertion is when we insert ads across a full catalog of episodes to get multiple impressions within a specific time frame, as opposed to the ad being associated with one episode. And that baked and embedded ad that was tied to one episode really had a strong long tail and marketers and agencies love that because they didn't have to pay for all of the impressions that they were receiving. But really, it leaves the industry under monetized because we're not getting all of the impressions out in front of every potential consumer. So I'm a huge proponent of dynamic ad insertion, but there's a lot of pushback in the industry about its effectiveness. Do you think that it's like, is there the potential that people, you know, using dynamic insertion could overpay for impressions? Could they, you know, maybe pay for extra impressions that they didn't need? Or, you know, when do we get into like, you know, we're talking about frequency capping and is the right, you know, is the same person getting this message too many times? When you think about it from your strategy and from your approach, how important are things like that to consider? I love answering this way because there are certain things that are just out of my lane or I'm not educated on. And this is one of them. And so like, I have, I have no idea. I'd be happy to like, sort of like talk through my off the cuff thoughts, but this is a place where I don't have a ton of expertise. Okay. Well, I had to, I, I didn't really think you did, but I had to throw it out there just to, <laughs> to see me, like the, the ingredients to like successful podcast advertising is like, you can do it in any part of the episode, but I really think pr- pre-roll is the main one that you're going for. And I think that live read authentic from that. And I think highly targeted podcasts are some of the key ingredients. Does that make that doing that operationally challenging for sure? Would there be automated ways that would create more scale that may be less effective? 100% those will happen as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Chris, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed our conversation today and I just love your approach. I love that. I I mean, really, I did not expect you to say some of the things that you said. I expected you to say that we really needed to lean into metrics and um, having you um, go the opposite. By the way. Yeah. Metrics are important, but I, I bring the perspective of what's missing and I try and communicate in a way that people realize it. So Typically what I'm saying is it's not what you're doing right now is not working. It's what you're not doing that's holding you back. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Totally agree. If people want to connect with you, where is a good place for them to find you? So uh, any social, but I'm most active on TikTok and LinkedIn, Chris Walker. And then if you want to listen to the podcast, it's the State of Demand Gen podcast available on Apple and Spotify. State of Demand Gen podcast. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Chris. And thank you for listening. I hope that this podcast episode has been informative. And if you were interested in learning more about podcast advertising, head on over to truenativemedia.com and download our podcast advertising guide. And we will catch you next time. Thanks so much. 
Thank you for listening to the Podcast to Advertising Playbook, your source to a better understanding of the podcast to advertising industry. 